The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program, WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, its staff, or management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on 89.3 FM WMKV. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, where this week, as every week, we put folks just like you on the path to financial independence using real estate as your vehicle. And today is question and answer week on Real Life Real Estate, as we try to do on the last Wednesday of every month. That means that the topic is all about whatever you want it to be. Uh, Questions about financing, management, buying, selling, tenants, landlords, whatever you would like to hear about, you need to call and let us know at 772-9658 or at 877-772-9658, because I have absolutely nothing prepared. And if you don't call, there's just going to be 48 minutes of dead silence interrupted with words from our sponsors. So, Oh, there's another way you can contact us, too. If you're the uh, chicken type, you can go to... Uh, askvina.com. There is a uh, response form there that you can put in your name where you are writing from and your question. And we will receive it here in the studio via the miracles of modern, not wireless, plugged in technology. In the meantime, while we're waiting for our questions to start coming in, do not forget that you can become a fan of Real Life Real Estate Investing by going to realliferealestateradio.com. And when you go there, you will find all kinds of cool things, including bunches of other fans to network with, as well as a special report on the state of the real estate education industry, what you need to look out for when you are uh, looking at seminars, boot camps, home study courses, that sort of thing. We're posting more and more as time goes by, as well as uh, more than a hundred past real life real estate programs with topics ranging from golly how to invest in self-storage and apartments and land and how to wholesale and retail and lease option and how to screen tenants and manage tenants and just understand this real estate business in general that's real life real estate radio.com be aware that you are going to be uh, asked to join facebook at that point if you have not already but heck get into the 21st century join it and and become a fan of real life real estate investing. We're going to go to the emails now that I've been receiving since we announced this show a couple of days ago. Um, gosh, got a whole bunch of emails through our fan site. And we're going to start with um, <laughs> uh, Liz in Yonkers, New York who says, how do we determine market value when prices are falling and comps become unreliable? Uh, Liz, it is not that comps have become unreliable. It's that comps have become few and far between. What a fixed-up house sells for to a homeowner is still the accurate market price for a property. What unfortunately is not an accurate market price is what a trashed REO sold to to an investor who was planning to make thirty or $40,000 from it. 
So you do the same thing you always did, which is try to find the fixed up market rate arm's length transaction comparables. Uh, relatively recently, you know, last six months is good if you can if you can do that. If you can't do that, there's a couple of other little things, little tricks that they don't they don't really tell you the price, but they sort of help you zero in on what the price is not, and it kind of circles around and gets you to a value. One of which is you can look at active listings. I was doing this for a student yesterday on a property uh, here in Cincinnati, and uh, we found two active listings that were exactly like her house. I mean, they were identical builder year, the whole thing. One of them had been on the market for 172 days at $140,000. The other one had been on the market for 11 days at 110000 Now, what that tells me is that house isn't worth 140000 Otherwise, it would have sold in 172 days. It, it tells me that the price is probably closer to the $110,000 mark. Another thing that you can look at is you can look at the um, expected cash flow from a rental property in your area and sort of back it, back it in and say, okay, if, if, if the property rents for $9.95, typically uh, it's worth about, now in Cincinnati, that property would be worth about $99,000. In Yonkers, maybe that property's worth $170,000, but you just, just sort of do an income comparison with the... Um, the value of the property. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week, which means any question you have, no matter how detailed, no matter how general, is a good question today at 772-9658 or 877-772-9658. Here is a question from Dan. This is in the Pittsburgh area, Pennsylvania. He says, uh, hey, Vina, thanks for being a Facebook friend. Uh, so my issue is I can no longer get residential mortgages due to ha- having too many mortgages already on my credit report. That's correct. As such, we've been getting commercial loans on single family homes. Recently, my wife was laid off. And since we don't have her income now, we can't qualify for any loan. So now I need to rely on private lenders, which I probably should have been all along. I would love to hear your thoughts on raising private funds and how you do it. Thanks. Okay, Dan, the first thing I want to say is along the lines of a legal disclaimer. And that is that the laws on how you have to register, disclose, advertise for, etc. private loans vary enormously from state to state. And I'm going to tell you how I raise private money and I'm going to tell you how I pay for the private money. Uh, but you are going to need to uh, check with the state of Pennsylvania and make sure that uh, you, you know that you are staying within their guidelines for raising private money. And the way you're going to do that is you're going to contact a securities attorney who is familiar with the laws in the state of Pennsylvania. And of course, that applies to all of the rest of you who are li- listening from outside the state of Ohio as well. Um, the best place to start with finding private money to buy buy and repair properties is within your circle of influence, friends, families, colleagues, and people that they know. Uh, in that way, you can sort of avoid doing any advertising, which is usually, unless you've got a securities license, a no-no. Uh, it certainly is here in the state of Ohio, a no-no to be doing advertising for uh, private lenders unless you have, again, a securities license. Um, the... Uh, the pitch to them is basically if you have money in a CD at at 1% or 2% or 5% and you would like to invest it 
in a piece of real estate and you would be the bank, not the owner, so you don't have any of the responsibilities of management and so on. I am finding deals that I can buy and fix for less than 70% of the current value of the property. So it's a well-secured investment in the sense that the lender is only going to have about 70% of the value of the property in it, which means in a worst-case scenario where Dan gets hit by a bus and is unable to make his payments, the worst case for the uh, lender is that he is going to end up with a piece of property that's worth significantly more than what he has in it. You secure that with a note and a mortgage, or if you live in a deed of trust state, of course, with a deed of trust. Um, I'm a strong believer that any repair funds that you are borrowing, in other words, let's just make up some numbers and say you're borrowing fifty thousand dollars, you're paying thirty-five for the house, the other fifteen is for repairs, that you put that repair money into an account where both you and the lender are signatories on the account. Because I just think it's a really stupid idea for lenders to be handing people big giant chunks of cash and saying, sure, go ahead and fix the house. I don't know you're going to fix the house. They don't know that. So, um, Dan, that's the, 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 the 10 second outline for those of you in the in the greater Cincinnati area. Uh, Cincinnati RIA is going to be holding a meeting on the legalities and disclosures and best practices for private lenders and borrowers uh, at their second April meeting, which is something like the 15th of the month. Check out the second Thursday of the month. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week, and I am awaiting your wonderful questions at 772-9658 or 877-772-9658 or via askvina.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox, and it's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate, which means the lines are open with your questions, and you better call with them because there's no show unless you ask your questions. And I, I, I don't bite, I swear. doesn't matter what you take. Call me and tell me about your biggest real estate mistake. It won't matter. I'll still be nice to you. Seven, and you seven, are more likable than bacon. I am. I am I am significantly less salty, amongst <laughs> other things. Because you can't do that on the radio. You can't, you know, be salty like that. Seven seven two nine six five eight or eight seven 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 two nine six five eight are the numbers to call. You can also send us an email by going to askvina.com and filling out the response form there on that website. Uh, a couple of more questions that have come in via email. Uh, let's see, one from Martin in Clayton, New Jersey, who says, what is the best technique to wholesale foreclosures? I mean, the details of the documents and so on. Well, uh, Martin, first thing we have to do is define foreclosure because there are two stages of the foreclosure process where, where you would be likely to be wholesaling a property. One is a pre-foreclosure, generally going to be a short sale where you're negotiating with the bank to bring the 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 purchase price down to a level where you can actually make some money and the seller can still get out from under that loan. The other stage is after the bank has already taken the property back via a deed in lieu of foreclosure or a sheriff sale or a trustee sale, at, at which point it becomes an REO. With the short sales, generally you can use pretty much the same system for wholesaling them that you would any other property, which is simply assign the contract. Sometimes you get when you get the, the, the acceptance letter back from the bank, it says that, that the contract's non-assignable and you can't do that. But... Our experience has generally been if you then at that point call the the the, the loss mitigation officer there at the bank that you can uh, just tell him look you know it's been it's been six weeks eight weeks ten weeks six months nine months whatever since I made this offer and the the partner that I had is is 
has moved on, I need to put the contract in the name of this other person. And 90% of the time, they seem to be very willing to do that. With the bank-owned properties, it's a little bit of a different situation. And I think the reason you're asking the question is because bank-owned properties almost always have an addendum that disallows any assignment of the contract. And I'll tell you, we've, we've talked, I don't know, a dozen times here on Real Life Real Estate. You can go to realliferealestateradio.com and download some of the shows where we've talked about using land trust to put the property under contract and then assigning the land trust. But there's another thing out there right now that's very, very popular and widespread, which is something called transactional funding for wholesale deals. And the way it works is this. You put the property under contract, you line up your buyer for the deal. And there are these companies now that will come in and they will deposit the money with the title company to make the purchase of the property. So it actually gets closed and goes into your name or your corporation's name as long as the buyer's money is already on deposit for the new purchase. Now, this is not the same thing as a double closing. I know you've probably heard that double closings are impossible to do due due to a lot of state regulations uh, these days. But in a double closing, it's the buyer's money that's funding that first purchase and then the buyer buys in the second purchase. That's what's the problem. It's no problem for a third party to come in and fund the closing. These transactional funding companies, in my experience, are charging anywhere from two to three points. That's that's percent of the amount that they're loaning. So if you need a $100,000 loan to close the deal the first time, you're going to pay between two and $3,000. Some of them also have a, a sort of a, a transaction fee that might range from 100 bucks up to $500 uh, that you have to pay up front because a lot of these deals don't close and they want to get paid for their due diligence and so on, even if you don't close the deal. So on a $100,000 flip, you may end up paying $33.95 or something like that out of your profit. It's a very clean way to do things because obviously the bank can't stop you from reselling the property once you have bought it, even if you are reselling it 10 minutes later. That's not what the, uh, that's not what the addendum says. It says you can't assign the contract. So those transactional funding places, uh, you got to find one that actually has the money. You got to find one that uh, uh, isn't charging too, too much of your profit. You got to really understand what their rules are. But it's it's sort of the hot new thing in uh, in in wholesaling uh, real estate. So that is one of the good ways to flip REOs and short sales if you need to do it that way. It does take some money out of your profit, but you can build it into your offer or you can just accept the fact that instead of in New Jersey making 15000 on the deal, maybe you're only going to make 12000 on the deal. Now, there is one exception to what I just said. Pay careful attention, Martin. Fannie Mae foreclosures, Federal National Mortgage Association foreclosures, have a a clause in their addendum that says that you cannot resell or refinance the property for more than 120% of what you paid for it within 90 days of your purchase. So the transactional funding thing may not work depending on how much you're selling the deal for. You can often get that, uh, that clause waived, but only if in your initial offer, don't wait for the addendum to come back, in your initial offer you put in a clause that says that you want the clause regarding the deed restriction, because that's what it is, it's a deed restriction, that you want that waived. Otherwise, you may find yourself with a buyer and the funding to close the deal, but no deal because Fannie Mae won't let you resell the property within 90 days for more than 120% of what you paid for it. 
It's real life real estate investing. It's Q&A day. That means it's up to you, dear listeners, to call in here with questions that will keep us entertained for the next 35 minutes. 772-9658 or 877-772-9658. Again, in the greater Cincinnati area. Dial 772-9658 or toll-free outside the greater Cincinnati area, 877-772-9658. You can also send us an email by going to askvina.com, and it is pretty self-explanatory at that point. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, Let's see. More emails from listeners. Let's see. Um, Cindy from Silverton, Oregon says, I've done some wholesaling, some rehabbing, and some mobile home deals. Now I would like to learn commercial. Has being a realtor ever come back to bite you? Should I become an agent slash realtor? And again, Cindy is in Oregon. Uh, Well, Cindy, clearly you know that I am, in fact, a realtor. So that's, that's one thing I guess I don't have to say. It really has not, quote, come back to bite me because I do all of my necessary disclosures. When you become a real estate agent, one of the things they like pound into your head is that you have to let everybody that you deal with in regards to real estate, and that includes buyers and sellers and tenants, who you're working for. You don't have to tell them that you're working for them if you're not. And in your case, you're not, because if you're buying on your own behalf, you're obviously working for you. If you're selling on your own behalf, you're obviously working for you. The advantage of being a real estate agent is, of course, access to the multiple listing service for comparables, expireds, active listings, and so on. The disadvantage is all this extra disclosure that you have to do. Uh, Should you become an agent? Well, that depends, Cindy. Are you doing this because you're active enough in real estate that it has become something that would be really convenient for you? Or are you doing it because you want to procrastinate and not make offers? Because uh, I usually tell people who have never made an offer, do not get a realtor's license until you do. Why expend all that energy and time and money taking the classes and passing the test and all that sort of stuff if you're not actually going to do it? And if you haven't made an offer, trust me, you don't know that you're going to do it. You may intend to, but you don't know that that's the case. So we thank you very much for your email, Cindy. Uh, Let's go ahead and go to the phones and talk to Tom on line one in Cincinnati. Tom, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Hi. With the tax season coming up, uh, I bought my second property last year, and this will be my first year that I have to deal with taxes on the rental property. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you can give me some tips. Well, you, you'll be surprised to find out how easy that Schedule E actually is to fill in. Uh, it's it, it's pretty straightforward. You know, what was your advertising? What was your repair costs? You know, what were your etc. And uh, the depreciation. Uh, is the, the is the other thing that you have to fill in there, but there's a separate form for that that will help you figure the depreciation. Uh, did you do a lot of repairs on the property before getting into service by any chance, Tom? No, I, I bought it ready to go. You bought it ready to go. Okay, so uh, it won't really be a... Uh, there, there's this thing that you can do, and it, it, it starts to make sense after you own a lot of properties and have a lot of income, called componentized depreciation, where... What you do is you, you say, okay, I paid, name a figure, $100,000 for the house, but I'm going to break that up into what what I actually bought that was house and what I actually bought that was items that are depreciable over a shorter period of time. So you might say, like, 
I bought $100,000 worth of house, but that's not what happened. What happened was I bought $5,000 worth of carpet, which has a seven-year depreciation schedule. I bought uh, three appliances that have a 10-year depreciation schedule. I bought, you see what I'm saying? For two properties, probably not worth it. But uh, when, you, you. when you get a little further along, uh, you might well find it worth it. Now, the other thing that I'm going to absolutely encourage you to do, Tom, is find an accountant who is familiar with real estate because I have seen people who, like you, own rental properties and their accountants tell them things like, oh, well, you can't depreciate this because you're not, quote, an active investor. And they're not even really looking at what the legal meaning of that is and what you know how much you are allowed to depreciate even though you're not meeting the IRS's definition of an active investor. And an accountant who has familiarized themselves with real estate is going to get you much bigger deductions, legal deductions, than one who d- doesn't really understand it and therefore is just going to say, oh, look, you made $1,200 this year in rent. you got to pay taxes on it. So I'm going to strongly encourage you to find somebody who is familiar with the real estate business. Gotcha. Okay, Tom? Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much for your call. Appreciate that. When we come back from the break, we're going to talk to James in Silverton, and we're going to talk to you if you call 772-9658 or 877-772-9658, or simply send us an email via askvina.com. It is Real Life Real Estate Investing, and it is question and answer week, as George so ably announced. 772-9658. I'm not using I'm not used to getting that kind of help from Mike. He's just like well, Yeah, whatever. When you Here's got Mike's trip, boss right? in here, then you get the little extra treatment. That's right. See? Where is Mike, by the way? Nothing He's, happened, did he? No, no, Mike's fine. He's taking a well deserved day off. Yeah, that's right. It's uh, Mike Mike deserves a day off. Seven seven two nine six five eight. All that making up weather reports is exhausting. Seven seven two nine six five eight or eight seven 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 two nine six five eight if you'd like to give us a call here in the studio or you can send us a question via the askvina.com form. Let's go to uh, James in Silverton calling on line two. James, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Thank you. Um, got a quick question. Um, of a first time, we were, first of all, me and my fiance, we were first time home buyers in May um, of last year. Um, we're thinking about holding onto the property for 10 years and then uh, moving closer to the Madeira area. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we were just trying to decide whether we were going to resell the property or use it as a rental property, um, especially with the way the foreclosure market is right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we thought it might be an opportunity there. Do mm-hmm. you see that? James, how old are you? Uh, I am 25. And you're thinking ahead 10 years about <laughs> about what you're going to do. That's 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 amazing. That's why I asked, because you said you were a first-time home buyer and uh, had a fiancé. Um, there are... There are always sort of pros and cons to holding on to a personal residence as a rental. If you got a good deal on it and the rental market is strong when you decide to move out and and uh, move on to to your to your dream house, you may be unable to resist the cash flow. Especially since you'll be 10 years into a 30-year loan. I mean that won't change your monthly payment, but that means the tenant is paying off more property each month than you are paying off right now uh and you may just decide what the heck i'm i'm definitely going to do this now something happens tax wise when you convert a personal residence to a rental property and that is that you you lose the homeowner exemption to capital gains 
which means if you sell it for if you sell it in 20 years for a big profit, you're going to uh, end up paying capital gains on it, which you wouldn't if you had just sold it at the end of your home ownership. Um, the other thing that happens tax-wise is you get to start depreciating it. So there's a there's a there's a plus and a minus to that. I'll tell you one of the big issues that often comes up with converting a home into a rental property is a psychological one. Uh, when I when I was ready to move out of my first house, my husband absolutely refused to rent it, even though we're in that business, right? And the reason was we had done most of the work in that house ourselves. We put in the furnace, we put on the roof, we painted it, scraped all the woodwork, he built some shelves. I mean, we did a massive amount of work on the property over the course of eight years. And his argument was if he came back to that house two years later and the tenants had trashed all that great work we'd done, he was going to be in jail for murder. So we ended up selling the property rather than holding on to it for a rental because uh, he just couldn't stand it psychologically. So there's a number of factors that weigh in, but what happens is when you're ready to move, sit down, do a rent survey, figure out what the cash flow is going to be based on your principal interest taxes and insurance payment, as well as, don't forget, that suddenly your expenses are going to go up by about 20% of the gross rents for uh, vacancies, maintenance, turnovers, advertising, things like that. And if it's a, if it's a good cash flow that you can't resist, sure, hold on to it as a rental. Just make sure that your tax professional knows that the property has been converted uh, to a rental property. Also, make sure your insurance agent knows that because you don't want to be carrying the wrong kind of insurance on a property. So very much appreciate your call, James. If you have a question for us here on Real Life Real Estate Investing today, give us a call at 772-9658 or 877-772-9658. have an email here from Daniel in Warren, New Jersey, that I, I actually had to refer this off to an expert who knows more than I do about it. He says, hey, Vina, I'm a I'm a college student without credit and would like to apply for a credit card. What's the fastest and best way to build my credit score so I can get approved for a credit card? Now, for this question, I went to Lucy Brenton, who was a guest here on Real Life Real Estate about six weeks ago. Her show is at realliferealestateradio.com if you would like to download it and listen to it, uh, Daniel. She says the fastest way to build credit is to have a friend or loved one add you as an authorized user on their existing credit card or cards. You'll want to make sure that they have excellent pay history and low utilization percentage on the card. In other words, if they've got a $5,000 balance, they're using maybe a thousand of it at a time and they're paying it back every month. Uh, She says um, there is no cost for them to add you. And when they do the very next month, the credit card company will report their credit history to your report as well, thus giving you their credit history as part of your report and therefore boosting your score. It is best to add three of these types of accounts if you can. If not, the next best thing is to open a certificate of deposit with a bank, then ask the bank for a loan using the CD as collateral. You will then get a gold star every month when you pay the loan on time. Your credit score will go up with as little as three on-time payments. Good luck. Again, that answer, not mine. It's from Lucy Brenton, who was a guest here about six weeks ago. You can go to realliferealestateradio.com and download her program that she did. Uh, We're going to go back to the phones. Remember, you can call us here at Real Life Real Estate by dialing 772-9658 here in the greater Cincinnati area or 877-772-9658 if you're outside greater Cincinnati as Janice is, who's calling from, I assume, California, the state, not California, Ohio. Janice, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. (laughs) 
California the state. <laughs> okay. We've got a California, Ohio, and we've got a Wyoming, Ohio. So it's always a little bit confusing when people call from California or Wyoming as to exactly where they are. So what's your question, Janice? Well, um, I don't write fast enough, and um, <laughs> I wanted to um, go back to something you were talking about earlier. Uh-huh. Um, I think one guy asked you about... Um, wholesaling and you were talking about um, pre-foreclosures and REOs and then you mentioned something about land trust and transactional funding Mm -hmm. and that um, that was confusing to me I didn't understand the company that agrees to fund the closing you said it's as long as the buyer's money is is under contract is that what you said okay let's 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 create a scenario here Janice Mm-hmm. You found a killer deal, and you're in California, so we'll put some California numbers on it. It's worth three fifty. You're able to sell it to me for two hundred as a wholesale deal, mm-hmm. and you've actually got it under contract for one seventy five. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in a in a tra- in a traditional wholesale deal, what would happen is I would give you twenty five thousand dollars. You would assign the contract to me, and I would go close it for one seventy five. That's a Mm -hmm. traditional wholesale deal. The problem is with bank-owned properties, there is a clause in the addendum that says you can't do that. That that if you put the property under contract, you have to show up to the closing and close it. So where where the transactional funding guy steps in is I deposit the $200,000 with the title company, with the escrow company in California. And when the transactional funding guy finds finds out that the money from the from the escrow company that my money is on deposit, he then funds he did, he then sends the escrow company hundred and seventy five thousand dollars so that you can buy the deal, which is immediately going to be sold to me. Like the next second, it's going to be sold to me because my money's already sitting there, right? No, you're the I'm the buyer. the buyer. I'm the buyer. The buyer. I'm, I'm letting you make twenty five thousand dollars in this scenario, Janice. Don't 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 complain mm-hmm. at me. You just made twenty five grand in our mm-hmm. imaginations. So yeah, okay. the, the transactional funding guy puts up the one seventy five so that you can close the deal. Mm-hmm. But my money to buy it from you is already on deposit with the escrow company. So like two minutes later, a new deed is prepared. The first deed was from the bank to Janice, and that got paid for by whom? The transactional guy. Right. And then the second okay. tr- transaction is from Janice to Vina at how much money? At 175 Well, actually at 2 Yes. At 2 so that I get my profit. That's okay. right. And out of that profit, you're going to pay the transactional funding guy somewhere in the vicinity of $6,000, depending on what, how, many, how many points he charges and so on. But heck, what's the it's, typical fee? It's it's two. What I'm seeing, and you, of course you can go on the internet and Google this. It's it, what I'm seeing mm-hmm. is two to three percent, either with oh, okay. or without a smaller, like maybe five hundred dollar um, fee for just applying for the loan alone in the first place. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. And then um, does this work the same way a regular wholesale deal does? I mean, I'm, I'm not having to go and apply for The for transactional anything. funding guys do not care about your credit because get, did you get that he's not putting the money on deposit until he knows your buyer's in place and has the money? Right. He couldn't care less right. what your okay. credit looks like or what your income looks like because he's, he's funding the deal for literally like 10 seconds. Okay. So okay. you don't have to go through filling out a bunch of paperwork. And- uh uh-uh. No, they want to they want to know about the deal. 
And of okay. course, when the they want to know about the buyer, especially when his money shows up. Okay. 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 That sounds easy. It okay. is easy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you very thank much you so for your much. call, Janice. Appreciate that. <laughs> if you have a question like Janice did, give us a call at 772-9658 or 877-772-9658. If you're having a hard time remembering that, you might notice that 9658 spells WMKV. 772-9658-877-772-9658 or send us an email via askvina.com. Uh, got an email from Alan Brimer in Provo, Utah that says, is it wrong to want to be as awesome as you, even if it means becoming a woman? I'll admit the idea is not really exciting, but if I have to, I will. Appreciate that very much, Alan. And uh, yes, we are going to get you here on the show at some point in time. Alan has a uh, a system for hiring assistants when you're a real estate investor who actually pay for themselves. So it's pretty cool. David Lopez in Northridge, California says, if a tenant does not respond to a pay or quit and the property has been abandoned, do I still need to take them to court or can I just go in and re-rent the property? Now, David, in general... You have to have the keys returned to you or else even if the property is clearly to you abandoned, the tenant is not officially out. And there have been cases and I've seen a number of folks involved in them where the tenant has basically left scraps of paper and old food and garbage in the apartment or the house and you go in and say, well, it's abandoned. You clean it up. You set it out on the curb. The trash men take it. And the tenant comes back and says, you took my stuff. That was all very valuable to me. Uh, yeah, well, that what that means is you follow through with the eviction process just as if you had not found the place abandoned. A quicker and easier way to do that is track down the tenant and get the key. Because I know in California, evictions are not easy and they're not cheap. So if you can find your tenant and get the key from him, uh, if he's left it on the counter, I, it, generally that is considered to be the same thing as delivery. You might want to talk to a tenant landlord attorney in California just to make sure there's nothing bizarre or more bizarre about that state than I know of. And uh, um, just make sure that, uh, you know, even if the key is, is not delivered to you personally, if it's there, that it's okay. And I know this is a major pain in the rear, but it is the safe way to do things. Uh, we need to take a quick break. It's question and answer week on Real Life Real Estate Investing, which means you can call us with any question you have at 772-9658 or 877-772-9658 or send us an email via askvina.com. Hey kids, it's Mr. Drew. Do you want to know more about real estate investing and hear about upcoming events? Check out Vina's website at realliferealestate.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week, and that means that we are taking questions from all over the United States on every topic that you can think of regarding investment real estate. 772-9658 or 877-772-9658 are the numbers to call. Uh, got an email from Tom in Charleston, South Carolina, who says, can you help us make sense of the Fannie Mae real estate purchase addendum? 
No, Tom, I can't. It would take someone with a much more twisted mind than I have to make sense of that Fannie Mae real estate purchase addendum. He says it seems like it could fill up an entire show. In fact, Tom, it did fill up an entire show. And if you go to realliferealestateradio.com, you can download the program on REOs that the the guests were uh, Steve Elbert and Tom Rubens. And Tom is a Fannie Mae agent and talked extensively about that addendum. And actually, I think there's some video up on the site even uh, with Tom talking about that. So uh, go to realliferealestateradio.com. I think, Tom, I think you're already a fan. I'm going to look you up because I think you're already a fan and I think you're dismissing this and making me say it out loud. Uh, other, radio, other other questions from the askmina.com form. Uh, let's see here. Can I do a quick claim deed to add my wife on a property for the purposes of refi and will seasoning be affected? That's from Camben in Columbus, Ohio. Okay. First of all, Camben, I'm not blaming you for this because 75% of the people out there make this mistake. It is called a quit, quit, like in stop claim deed. It would seem to make sense to be a quick claim deed since it's like a quick way to get the, uh, your name off a property or somebody else's name on a property. And yes, you can in the state of Ohio do a quit claim deed from yourself to yourself and your wife in order to add her to the title. You need to, I I don't know enough about why you're trying to do this to know whether to advise you that you should do it. I'm just saying that you can do it. Also, yes, seasoning will typically be affected. You need to talk to the mortgage broker or lender that you are working with because um, they may not care that it, since since it's going to you and a wife, not you and, say, just some random business partner, uh, you really need to sit down and and find out with, with the lender what's not going to mess up your refi. So I hope that helped, Cameron. Uh 772-9658 or 877-772-9658 or go to askvina.com to ask your questions. Jeff in Alexandria, Kentucky says, I rehab five to six houses per year. And when completed, if the buyer is going to purchase with an FHA loan, I have to have owned the property for 90 days before closing. Is there any way around this FHA rule? No, Jeff, I am afraid there is not. The uh, fact that you are completing these houses and finding a buyer for them before the 90 days is over is surprising to me because most rehabbers are finding that this rule is not that big a deal because by the time they spend six weeks in rehab and another four weeks marketing and then the application comes in and then we're ready to close, it's way past the 90-day deadline. So you may be worrying about something here that isn't that big a deal. The one thing that you can do to go ahead and get the property occupied prior to the 90 days being up is you can sell the property to a tenant on a lease option collect their 3% down as part of the option fee. You can't do that in the city of Cincinnati, but you can do it in Alexandria. And then when the 90 days has passed, uh, you know, obviously before they even move in, you're going to want them pre-qualified for FHA. Uh, you're going to want um, them to have started the process, but then by the time the 90 days has passed, they're already living in the property. You've already collected your 3% down. That's going to go to FHA for a down payment. And at least the property won't be vacant. And you'll have somebody uh, hooked in there. And of course, worst case scenario is they don't manage to get the FHA loan, in which case you have a lease option tenant who put 3% down and is paying you hopefully a nice market rent. Okay, question from Dan in New Jersey. And it starts, okay. 
<laughs> I'm looking forward to seeing you in New Jersey. So here I am sitting in front of the REO I just got a contract on. Wow. It's like like on his cell phone, I guess. This came in at 525. He's sitting in front of the property that he got just got. Congratulations, Dan. That he just got under he just got under contract and I will only have 14 days to resell the contract. How likely am I to get an extension from the bank? And he says in this case FDIC. I don't think it's FDIC, Dan. I think that might be Fannie Mae. Uh, if I can't find a buyer in time, also uh, you said we will get our money when we sign the contract, but won't the buyer from a wholesale want escrow? How do I do this without incurring costs? Okay. Uh, I think what you're telling me, Dan, I'm going to try and translate. Uh, you've got 14 days until the end of your inspection period. That means that you have to find a buyer who has given you money within 14 days or else it fails inspection. Uh, how likely are you to get an extension from the bank? Well, that depends. D is what happened here that you actually made the offer like a month and a half ago, you just heard back from it and the closing date that you put in the contract is now only 14 days away because if that is the case, it's relatively easy to get an extension. You just say, look dudes, when I said I was gonna close on April the 15th, that was February the 1st and now it's March the 26th. So this isn't gonna work for me anymore. Let's extend the contract and that's usually not a, a big, big problem. Um, Oh, let's see. Also, you said we get our money back. Well, yes. Um, you should receive your wholesale fee when the buyer says yes. Your question about won't they want to put it in escrow depends on a couple of things. Number one is how well do you know the buyer? Do they trust you? Do they know that you've done your due diligence, gotten a title search, actually the bank's going to do that, uh, gotten your termite inspection and so on. Are you of good reputation? Because in that case, the way you should operate your business is that the buyer gives you the money and you give them the assignment of contract. If the buyer wants to put the money in escrow for some reason, and often in your area of the country, the reason for that is your wholesale fee is like $25,000 and they just don't feel safe about handing anybody $25,000 before they have the deed to a house, then yes, have them escrow it with your attorney or their attorney, it doesn't matter, or the title company or whomever. Uh, just make sure that there are escrow agreements in place that say that you receive that money on the date of closing, on the actual date of closing or the scheduled date of closing, whichever comes first. The whichever comes first thing is really important because if the closing date is April 15th and they close on April 16th, you should still be getting your money on April the 15th because that's when they agreed to close because that's when you agreed to close and you assigned the contract to them. The money just needs to be somewhere in the control of yourself or a third party before you can even say to yourself, yes, I have a buyer for this deal. Otherwise, you don't actually have a buyer for the deal. Real Life Real Estate Investing, we have about, oh, eight minutes left in the show. If you have a question, please give us a call at 772-9658 or 877-772-9658. It is question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate Investing, which means without your questions, we do not have a show. Uh, let's see here. Uh, question, wow, this is a long question. Question from David in Panama City Beach, Florida, which is referring to fair housing. This was a program that we did back in February. 
It seems to me that the only way to protect yourself from high-risk renters is not to advertise and to find your tenants by approaching people you know or meet without them knowing you have a place for rent. Not to discriminate, to, but to pick the best people regardless of whatever category the government puts them in. If you have to advertise, then you put yourself in harm's way by allowing the government to force you to take higher risks so they don't have to. It seems to me that a smart real estate investor would either buy or rent by interviewing prospective tenants without letting them know you have a place to rent, or buy and sell with owner financing with large down payments, or buy and sell with whatever financing the buyer can get. You touched a nerve here with the Fair Housing Show where the government forces us to take unnecessary risk. I think you might have a little bit of a misunderstanding here, David, about how fair housing law works. First of all, even if you're selling with owner financing, the same rules apply. Even if you're selling with financing the buyer's getting, the same rules apply. You are always allowed to choose the best tenant based on the criteria that you have set up that, that you know, this is what to me means a good tenant, and based on the order in which they applied for the property, as long as your criteria don't tromp on protected classes. So you can say, okay, to my mind, the best tenant is someone who makes at least four times the monthly rent, has been on the job for two years, uh, doesn't smoke, doesn't have a dog. You, you can put all kinds of criteria in place as long as they aren't, they don't have kids or they're handicapped. You know, you cannot use criteria like that that get into fair housing issues, but you can use criteria that would tend to tell you whether a tenant is a good tenant or not. So, uh, you know, to me, a high risk tenant is not a tenant who has kids or who has a particular skin color or who's of a particular religion. To me, a risky tenant is one who doesn't make enough money or who has been evicted a lot or who, um, got sent to jail for beating up their last landlord. I'm not kidding. I actually had an applicant like that one time. And I was like, okay, that's going to be a new criteria. If you beat up your last landlord, you don't get to live in my house. So to, to me, the criteria don't have to do with these fair housing things. And in any case, the, the workarounds that you are uh, talking about aren't going to work because fair housing law applies to all real estate transactions, whether or not there are... Um, renters involved. A question from Joe in Austin, Texas. He says, I'm a newbie prospective real estate investor and I listen to your podcast religiously. Hmm. Might actually start a religion, the real estate goddess religion. Since I am green behind the ears, I think the expression is actually wet behind the ears, Joe, and or, or green, but a little mixed metaphor there. I want to ask how you can determine if a turnkey real estate service in another city is genuine or legitimate. I've come across some professional-looking websites that list home for sales, rehab done, managed, and tenanted. All I would have to do is purchase the property. Yeah, Joe, that is a really good question because the best case scenario is you purchase the property, it gets managed for you, you get some of the cash flow because generally the management's going to cost some money. You get the tax breaks, you get the mortgage pay down, and all you do is sit there and collect a check while somebody else repairs it and deals with the tenants. The worst case scenario is you get hooked up with some bad guy, quote, turnkey company uh, who under repairs the house, figuring you won't come and look at it, who puts in bad tenants just to show that the property's rented so that you will pay more for it, who overcharges you for the property, who doesn't pay attention to fair housing law, for instance. 
And the only way you're going to be able to check on that is to do some research on the people in the company, you know, check check uh, uh, public records and see if they've had lawsuits filed against them. Ask for references. One of the best setups, I think, for those turnkey deals is when the person on the ground in the other place actually has some sort of skin in the game. They've got they've got money in the property. They've got ownership interests in the property. They have some reason to not want to let it slide and not want to let bad tenants be in the deal. Uh, I might even run a credit report, honestly, on on the people that I was dealing with on the other side. But I'll tell you one thing that experience, 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 experience matters. Okay, somebody who jumped into this turnkey rental property business selling deals to other people without ever having had lots of experience managing them on their own. I wouldn't trust that. I'd also want to see their systems for management. I'd want to see a sample report that I was going to get every month. I'd want to see uh, exactly what their written system is for evaluating tenants. I'd want to see, uh, I just, I really want to understand how their business ran and see that it was running like a professional business. Unfortunately, we are out of time here on Real Life Real Estate Investing. I want to thank all of the callers and emailers who made Question Answer Week what it is. Remind you to go to realliferealestateradio.com, become a fan of the site, download the past shows, watch the videos, download the special report on real estate gurus, and just generally enjoy yourself there. We will be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. <music>